0: Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room episode number 187 for August 12th, 2020. The EdTech Situation Room is a weekly podcast where we focus on the news headlines from across the techosphere and shoot them through an educational lens. Joining me as always, good evening, Dr. Wes Fryer. How, I should say, hola, Dr. Westfriar, how are you tonight?
1: Bienvenidos, Jason. I am well and looking forward to the return of students on Friday. Um, so we are, you know, we've actually, it's been a better, better um, a less hectic time back because we normally just have a, a one week and it's just jam-packed with meetings and we've had more like a week and a half and anyway, it's felt better. So I am the... Director, uh, no, I am not a director. I am a Spanish teacher and a computer teacher. So that's right. Uh, I'm a fifth and sixth grade media and digital literacy teacher and a fifth grade introductory Spanish teacher. Um, but, uh, my, my, my proverbial, you know, title that, uh, is, is a, anyway, is technology integration innovation specialist at the Cassidy School in Oklahoma City. So Jason, I assume you are still performing some roles related to email for the Montana Digital Academy, is that correct?
0: That is indeed correct, where I I didn't even talk about who I was. Uh, I'm Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus. And although uh, there is lots of distance learning that will be going on in coming weeks and months in Montana, my program, uh, which has a, a more limited role, will certainly see an increase in enrollment. But uh, a lot of questions and also doing our best to help out schools in Montana to talk about the ins and outs of distance learning. Um, But yes, lots of email during this time of year, lots of talking to parents, and uh, we do not have administrative support, so we kind of answer our own telephones. But frankly, I kind of like that this time of year. It gets me an opportunity to talk to parents and principals and teachers and counselors across the many, many miles of Big Sky Country to talk about where maybe we fit in um, for a lot of unique student cases. But... This isn't just about us. We've got another agenda tonight related to the links. You can go to our website, edtechsr.com slash links. Check out everything we're talking about tonight, whether we get to the article or not. And as last week and the week before, and I believe the week before that, we have a stunning number of stories that we can talk about, including a number of things from last week. But this week in our tracker, some COVID-19 news, some social media news, a little bit about privacy, something that we like to call on the podcast. podcast, The Tech Correction, a little bit about how technology is evolving as we spot the maybe benefits and detractors of the concept. Microsoft News, Apple and Google News, some information warfare news, a category called Miscellaneous. And then, of course, we'll end our episode tonight with Geek of the Week. Dr. Fryer, you're up on the big board. Where should we start tonight?
1: You know, let's start with a COVID article. Um, man, this is from, uh, this, yesterday, August 11th. <clears throat> Ars Technica, Russia skips COVID 19 vaccine trial, says millions to be, to be vaccinated this month. Uh, and so you may wonder, you know, the technology angle here. I think we probably reported a few weeks ago on the show, there was an alleged hack of some, um, of some vaccine, you know, data uh, from U.S. companies. And there's conjecture on whether that was Russia, whether that was China. I uh, am not a vaccine expert, uh, but, you know, reading this article and other things, there are a series of phases that vaccines go through in terms of a limited phase one trial, and then they scale up to phase two and phase three. Um, we have talked about and, and mentioned the the roles in which dif- disinformation is is playing in society, not only with elections but with other kinds of things. Different authors have talked about how uh, you know the very vocal anti vaccination lobby or group that is out there in the world, not just in the United States, but elsewhere is probably going to play a significant role as, you know, vaccines are developed, et cetera. And then, you know, this unfortunate competition that is happening, uh, between nations, uh, but, you know, in terms of who can bring the virus, a vaccine, you know, to the market first. So, Uh, This article starts off by saying Russian President Vladimir Putin announced Tuesday Russia is the first country in the world to grant regulatory approval for a COVID-19 vaccine dubbed Sputnik V. And he claimed one of his own daughters had already received a dose of the vaccine. Pretty crazy. So, uh, Jason, are you ready to sign up for Sputnik V? I was
0: wondering if you were going to ask me that. No, I will not be taking a vaccine, uh, that was developed in such little time. And obviously this caught a lot of attention in the last 24 hours. I know there's a lot of coverage on NPR about this this morning. And, you know, it's, it's obviously problematic from the standpoint of the risk to, you know, recipients of this vaccine in Russia. But I guess the part of this that, that, that I personally am pretty disgusted by is that, you know, Obviously, nobody wants a delay in getting a vaccine or or, or even medical interventions on behalf of COVID-19 victims, but we have a scientific process for a reason, and... It's just, I mean, uh, yes, the the virus is terrible, but if we vaccinate millions with v- vaccines that are either ineffective or what I'm much more fearful of uh, it, that are dangerous to human beings, it's going to create an awfully terrible situation for an awful lot of people. And I know the part I don't like about that, particularly with uh, President Putin in Russia or whatever he's calling himself now um uh, uh, supreme leader putin in in russia is is the fact that it's it 's turning into an international competition it 's one thing to have an international competition to get to the moon or get to outer space. Where there, uh, you know, is it millions of people's lives in the line? It is not appropriate for a vaccine development process. And for those that have been keeping track of vaccine development over the last uh, couple of weeks and months, you know, it's probably not going to be one vaccine that does this. It's going to be probably a vaccine which has a variety of strategies, vaccine strategies that's probably going to be effective here. And remember, for this to be completely effective, we have to have a large percentage of 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 members of the human race take it, but then secondarily, we also uh, uh have to, to you know be able to do that to seven billion people around the world. And I, I just yeah, I don't I didn't like hearing about that this morning. Like even if it is a legit vaccine, right? Even if there is no risk to humans and it's effective, it it I think it sets up dangerous precedents. So uh you know I for one uh cannot wait Uh, for a vaccine, uh, my, you know, my life has substantially changed under, under COVID-19, but I certainly don't want to take uh, shortcuts, uh,
1: to get to that point. Where you next, sir?
0: Okay, a couple other quick uh, COVID uh, uh, note, notes here. Um, uh, Wes and I were talking about this before the show, but Android Central uh, published an editorial on August 9th that talks about uh, navigating the Chromebook crunch of 2020. And um, I have some a little bit of personal experience with this with my day job, but... Uh, Chances are, if you work in IT for a school, or you are a teacher in the school, or an administrator in a school, and you've tried to ramp up your technology assets as part of a, a, a learn at home, or a distance learning play, or even to provide more technology access in your school in the last couple of months, you've probably noticed that very few things are shipping as quickly as they were pre-pandemic. And there, this article talks specifically about Chromebooks and there's a couple of points here I, I want to talk about in a moment, but uh, there's a lot of reasons for this, not the least of which the global supply chain was substantially disrupted. Remember that the the origin of this uh, the coronavirus was in China, which provides a serious percentage of the world's electronics and the capability for manufacturing. And for for me personally, um, I as part of my work at the Digital Academy, we're bringing on a couple of part time employees from one of our projects um, uh, uh, this month, and we are a Chromebook shop in that uh, we send out Chromebooks to our uh, to our remote staff so we can easily manage those via the cloud and sure enough uh, when I went to go buy uh, Chromebooks and these weren't even the standard school Chromebooks these were I tend't believe in... Kind of the medium spec Chromebooks as as a strategy. I, I plan on kind of showing off the ones we ended up picking up here in a moment when they finally arrived. But I just needed three of them, um, and I contacted Best Buy, and uh, we have a business account with Best Buy. I'm not a consumer. It's calling up looking to you know corner the market on Chromebooks, and I had to navigate uh, a, a pretty serious set of phone calls to get three ordered. And originally they told me that the the aim date for shipping was the end of August. I was told it could go in until late September, and it ended up a couple of days later, they shipped two of them, and then the final one showed up today. And it, it, there's a really decent chance, I think, that if you're not ordering until right now, or if you think you're, you're going to be able to order now and get them like you have in the past, that that's not true. That's also true if you are a parent or you are working at home and you need a new equipment, if you think you might need something in September October, November don't wait around order that right now get into the priority list for various vendors um, this Android Central article does make a couple of good suggestions. It talks about that even if you are IT, looking at local sources, including retail might be an opportunity to pick up uh, computer equipment that otherwise isn't making it into the traditional business supply chain. Um, it also, uh, uh, I'm not sure if this, I can't remember if this article talks about it or not, but also looking, um, on various online sources that may be outside of your standard me or standard uh, process for purchasing is also important. And then two other things, one of them mentioned here, if you have a bunch of old Windows equipment sitting around your district and uh, it was Windows 7 or even uh, Windows XP or maybe Windows Vista, uh, if it is a relatively new machine, and I mean 10 years or, or, or less, chances are Cloud Ready from Neverwhere would be an excellent option here for turning that hardware into a Chromebook. Now, it's not... Free. You should license this from from Neverware because they do that for school implementations. But my personal experimentations with CloudReady have been really outstanding. And in fact, um, I have an old desktop at home that I've converted into a CloudReady uh, uh, desktop machine, and it's the fastest machine in my house. And then, just for a moment, um, I, I did end up picking up the latest HP. Uh, it's, it's the HP fourteen. Um which is my favorite favorite Chromebook. Uh these things were on sale for Best Buy, even though they were delayed in shipping. Uh, I got them for $150 off. So this was under five hundred dollars per, per device. This is a beautiful Chromebook. Uh it's got an i3 chip in, eight gigabytes of RAM, it's a convertible, so it it turns into uh the kind of four means. It's it's a laptop, it's a tent, it's a tablet. But what makes really you dis-
1: do- it makes you disappear with your, your pseudo green screen too. You it literally does. just like Became a ghost, so yes, wow! I, I Did that, ladies and gentlemen. The extra feature that you don't necessarily hear of on the regular marketing for this particular Chromebook, probably only this model.
0: Right, 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 right. <laughs> what can I say? It, it, it's it's really an outstanding piece of hardware, and it's got a, a backlit keyboard and a fingerprint reader, and it's all metal. So
1: five hundred dollars. What is that? Five hundred bucks. Yeah,
0: yeah, I think it was four ninety seven or something, and then we bought a, a, a three year extended warranty on it because it, it'll uh, uh, we have a three or four year turnaround on it, but uh, on, on equipment in my organization. But like, I just I can't stress enough. Um, you know, order early, and then. I'm always good for a Chromebook recommendation. Um, So, you know, if you are looking for a Chromebook, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out to me on Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach. And uh, I keep up on that because the Chromebooks keep getting better and better. So a lot out of me, but I wanted to, you know, uh, highlight that particular article.
1: That's fantastic. Wow. Well, um, you know, we're waiting for iPads to come. Uh, when we were ordering at the beginning of the summer, um, vendors that, that our IT folks had talked to were telling us, I think, November as a, as a possible ship date. Uh, we were expecting to get iPads in six weeks, which I think would be about right now. And we just heard an update today that that's probably more like early September. So, if you have not ordered for your school i mean it 's too late I mean, yeah order order as soon as you can, but don 't plan on that i think that 's really good advice about wear. and um, I think it 's going to be interesting i don 't have any articles about this, but in terms of you know the kinds of support uh, that families need and the ways in which you know with home wi fi but also with with computers um, you know these are not traditional tech support roles for schools as far as extending you know to the home beyond sending a device home that comes back to school, but it is going to be quite interesting to see how all of this continues to evolve and develop and Um, you know, hopefully we're going to see a lot of creative solutions and and ways that we can make things work. And I think Neverwhere, uh, for, for home use, that is completely free, Jason. Is that correct? That you can, it is. Yeah. No support, but to be honest,
0: chances are you're looking at a laptop that really isn't working that well for you anyways. And I've probably installed it on 12, 15 different uh, varieties of laptops and desktops, and it's worked every single time. It really is an amazing piece of software.
1: Yeah. Well, there you hear it, folks. You you heard it from Jason and, uh, you know, there's, there's pretty much no more credible source on the Web, particularly <laughs> when it comes to Chrome and Google information than Dr. Knifer. So, all right. Well, uh, let me let me do a very positive one. we are going to have some negative stuff. Hey, let's talk Chromebooks and 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 Microsoft Minecraft Minecraft Education. Uh noted on the show a couple weeks ago that they were out in beta and I was kind of holding my breath wondering how are we going to do this? Can can we do it? And uh yes indeed on August 10th, Microsoft has announced that um Minecraft education edition on the Chromebook is here. So I actually uh put in an IT ticket today, which is of course always fun at this time of year with so many things going on, but um and I've got to test this. You it, this article talks about how you need to basically allow uh the deployment of Android apps for Chromebook um in your domain uh and then uh enabling managed Google Play. So what I'm wondering is, is if this is going to only be supported on Chromebooks that can run Android, because if that's the case, then that uh, almost is... Almost certainly. Yeah, then that is almost certainly going to rule out functionality on a number of our older Chromebooks that we have. So maybe there will not be quite quite as much rejoicing. But, you know, in general, this is a fantastic thing because, uh, you know, we, we're testing, actually, iPad versus Chromebook this year. Uh, sixth and seventh grades at our middle school are the ones that are kind of getting to be the guinea pigs. And so sixth grade is going to have iPad for the entire fall semester through Christmas. And then in January, they're going to trade with our seventh graders who, who have Chromebooks. Um, and, and I, I'm personally excited about it because it's really going to let both teachers and students provide a wealth of feedback about the two platforms, you know, comparing them. And, and it's the seventh generation iPad with, you know, this integrated uh, docking keyboard and Logitech Apple pencil style and, Anyway, I'm, I'm pretty excited about it, but I think that um, the, yeah, the 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 fact that you're going to need a fairly recent Chromebook that has, I think, some robust specs in order to run Android Marketplace. I don't know. Do you have any idea what percentage of the, of the uh, Chromebook fleet worldwide might be capable of running said Android apps, Jason?
0: I would say everything in the last four years maybe okay. three years there was a point where they said every Chromebook forward and then a number of them from from backwards but I mean the one thing to remember about Android apps and Chromebooks is that even if you're using modest hardware and 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 I, I don't want to go too far down the please make sure you're only buying Chromebooks with four or more gigabytes of RAM but if uh, even if you have relatively modest hardware so you're talking about the relatively basic Pentium or, or Celeron chips that oftentimes appear in in Chromebooks sold in mass. So I'm talking about Chromebooks intended for large rollouts to students and teachers. It's still going to do a great job of running Android apps because Android apps are actually aimed at very low-end Android phones. And remember, most Android phones are actually pretty slow, right? The reason why they feel snappy is because the Android operating system in part is uh, scales down to relatively modest hardware. So even if you, if you have a, a variety of of four- and five-year-old Chromebooks that can run the Google Play Store, there's an excellent chance that the vast majority of apps, including I'm assuming the Minecraft app, will work really well because, again, Android apps are aimed at low-end hardware.
1: That's fantastic. The other thing I'll say that I found out reading that article, and I had maybe read a hint of this, but it said very soon, um, so maybe it's not fully supported yet, Google logins are going to be able to be synchronized and linked to Microsoft 365, which would mean today we're not running Azure in the cloud, and we have Active Directory, but we're not doing any kind of Google Sync and all that good stuff. So if we do not have to have a separate silo of uh of passwords for our Microsoft 365 users uh, and you know especially students um they can just log in with their Google credentials woo that's that's fantastic so I'm pretty excited about that and glad to share some positive uh news amidst our, our covid time which can sometimes be a little bit of a Debbie downer for <laughs> the emotion of the articles
0: yep absolutely so uh, All right. and let me let me give a couple other quick Microsoft updates uh, and in fact, I just have one um, i uh, Microsoft announced a highly anticipated phone they announced it earlier this year and now they have a release date and a price it 's the surface duo phone. Which is a dual screen Android phone. And the only reason why I mention this is because I've got asked, or I've, I've got asked, I've been asked recently by a couple of friends of mine that know that I'm kind of an Android guy, whether I'm interested in this. And I have to say, generally speaking, I've been very impressed with Microsoft hardware the last couple of years. I really do feel like that they are starting to sell a premium experience with Microsoft hardware. And because they're manufacturing the hardware and the software, I think the Microsoft Windows experience is infinitely better when you're on Microsoft hardware, not unlike the Apple model or not unlike how a Chromebook works when you're running hardware from Google, but... I think that this whole $1400 dual screen phone architecture, it's not about Microsoft, really, it's about all manufacturers of phones, is kind of silly and ridiculous. And I know that foldable screens uh, will be a reality at some point. We've talked about them previously when Samsung released theirs. But the bottom line is, is that I don't like $1400 phones. I think the whole concept is, is patently ridiculous. And while I think this $1,400 dual screen Android phone looks interesting and cool. The bottom line is, is that I, I just don't think it's very realistic for anyone, but, you know, tech reviewers that get one, you know, on loan in, in, in the mail, or if you are, you know, a super Android, or I guess Microsoft person. The one thing I want to note about this though, is a lot of interesting things have happened. We uh, Samsung's uh, uh, late summer release event, happened. I can't remember if it was on Monday or if it was last week. It's a couple days ago. Last week, I think. Uh, Yeah. And they announced the latest uh, note phone, which is the Samsung S20 note or Note S20, or Note 20, and a beautiful-looking phone, but the high-end version of that phone is also $1,400. But the reason why this is super interesting is because Samsung has integrated a number of Microsoft features into the phone so that, as an example, you can take a Note using the S Pen ...from Samsung, which is integrated into the Note platform, and it syncs automatically to OneNote, and there's been a lot of interesting uh, uh, pieces back and forth where the, the Android ecosystem, the Microsoft ecosystem talk to one another. I would say if you're an Office 365 district and you're not otherwise super into the Google architecture personally... Consider download downloading all of the Microsoft apps to your phone. There's a launcher that you can get for your Android phone that's made by Microsoft that integrates all of the Office 365 stuff into it. And, you know, Microsoft, despite losing the mobile phone race, utterly losing the mobile phone race, it's created a competitive product on top of the Android. I wouldn't have guessed that five years ago, but that's definitely true. So I want to mention that as it released.
1: Another example of Microsoft's really big pivot in, Deciding to try to be relevant on every single platform, yeah. and not trying to, you know, just for, force everybody to buy buy a uh, certain hardware. Jason, my parents are among those live viewing tonight. We've had uh, three and four folks live. Hello, mom and dad. My, my dad had actually said specifically to give you a shout out to say hello. But my mother has asked a question on Facebook. Jason, your ears are vibrating or trying to escape. I think your <laughs> virtual background may be a bit confused by your headphones tonight. So, yeah. <laughs> such 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 are the uh you know the breaks when we are you know without a true green screen but still using software emulation so there there is the true are are you in the basement tonight or is it uh
0: uh, no, I call this the Sky Office, and in okay. fact, I even, I even have it a little blurred in the background. Um, I will uh, make it totally clear. Uh, I got a Montana flag hanging up back here now, and then this is my stack book or stack of Chromebooks. I've got a process for new employees, and then I bought a level, so this is what I'm currently working on in the Knifer
1: office. Awesome! Awesome. Okay, um, let's do kind of a consumer one a little bit. Uh, th- I, I think you've, uh, you've done Google music before. I, I was surprised to read this. So this is Ars Technica yesterday on August 11th. Headline is Google says it's working hard to address YouTube music complaints. And as I've mentioned on the show, we have become mostly a Spotify family. Um, my wife is not as much into music. And I think my son is heavily invested into his Apple playlist, but both of our daughters and myself are are loving Spotify. This article talks has a link at the beginning. It says Google play music is shutting down soon. And the transition to YouTube music currently leaves a lot to be desired. And so if you've got uploaded music, um, you have a lot of features that are gone and there's free tier music that's not available, et cetera. So this is not necessary. Well, I mean, it's interesting for school, I'll say this. We, uh, so in addition to having a whole new network at school, uh, we have a new firewall, which I think is going to be great. There's a lot more ma- bandwidth capability. Um, but our filtering is going to be different. And, uh, of course, it's wonderful to be able to stream music. <clears throat> Last year, we actually did have a rule in our middle school that I helped uh, encourage, which was to for students not to just all open up, you know, YouTube music whenever they, whenever they wanted to on their device. I mean, that could have a... An impact as far as network connectivity and things like that. So your policies in your school about streaming music and things like that over Wi-Fi, um, you know, can be important. Are Are you suffering as a Google Music? Uh, afeccionado, Jason, or, you know, how is that affecting you in the night and the knife for household, which I'm sure has a Google home in every room, probably simultaneously able to stream, you know, as a single speaker as one.
0: Um, Well, uh, so I have to say I am a, I'm a primary Spotify user in part because I have a family account and share it amongst my, my family. Right. So, um, I and I reason I, I originally picked up Google uh Play Music because I I like the interface and then they started adding on all sorts of extras to it which is why I keep it. And I think I'm paying like still only like 5.99 a month for it. I'm not paying the premium price and I keep Google Play Music which is now going to become YouTube Music not because of Google Play Music. I keep it because it gives me YouTube Premium and one of the things I keep forgetting about, and I've talked about uh, uh, probably a dozen times on this podcast, like how much I keep falling in love with YouTube over and over and over again, because there's so many wonderful channels on YouTube that I am infinitely entertained by and enlightened by that um, I, I had a hard time giving that up. But then I realize when I look at other YouTube users that one of the reasons why I have such a great experience is because I never see an ad. Because for whatever it is I'm paying a month, in addition to YouTube music, I'm all also getting YouTube Premium, which means I never see an advertisement ever on my YouTube account, and that makes an incredible difference in my experience on YouTube. Now, the reason why I mentioned that is because I I was an original Google Play Music user, and the shtick used to be that you could upload. All of your music library, which I did at the time, the maximum was 50,000 songs. And I believe I uploaded like 14,000 songs at the time. Huge old Apple, uh, uh, I'm sorry, um, iTunes library to it. And uh, as it turns out, I ended up deleting a lot of that because uh, I had poorly tagged music. In some cases, I had like weird versions of songs and the master library would be better but i did get the notification about 3 weeks ago to move it over to youtube music and i did and so far i like it but in reading that article i i probably don't rely on it enough to run into some of these problems, but I do think it is a, a big deal uh, uh, that people are running into these problems. I think it's kind of a brilliant play on, on Google's part to make it one branded YouTube, YouTube music app, in part because one of the things that's true, especially of uh, 20 and, and early 30 year olds, is a lot of people use YouTube as a you know, like a knockoff cheap Spotify, right? Like they stream songs uh, via video than utilizing a Spotify. So I've not run into these problems. I do like the general setup of the app, but then I'm a little spoiled because I have access to both.
1: Absolutely. All right. Well, folks, normally we're tying things into school, but, you know, sometimes you got to delve into the home aspect. And, uh, you know, I just I, I still continue to be amazed and loving having a few Google home minis around and and yeah. just being able to use voice commands and yeah. listen to playlists and, and all of that. So if you are a music lover and you are not, if you haven't, at least uh, this is going to sound like an ad. We have no ads folks. We are compensated financially in no way for, for bringing you our wonderful show. We've, we've talked about that, but you know, we're just, we're busy with other things. <clears throat> but anyway, I'll just throw in a free ad for Spotify. If you haven't tried that um, it's interesting to play that Spotify, is is making with podcasts you know there's there's some different podcasts that will have exclusive content or it'll be released first for spotify but anyway pairing a smart speaker today with uh you know a service like spotify and being able you know i'm not as much into the discovery it is sometimes you know making these suggestions and things like that to find recommend music that i might not have otherwise found but yep it is superb. We digress right. a bit from our normal educational technology focus. So can you bring us bring us back to the schoolhouse, Dr. Knifer? What else should we talk
0: sure. about? Sure. Uh, let's see here. Let's talk a little bit about. Um, well, there, there's some tech correction articles that that have held over a couple of weeks that, that I think it'd be a good time to talk about these tonight. So one in particular, uh, first and foremost, A tech correction for those new to the podcast is our concept that there is something going on. It started around 2015 where the explosive growth of technology started getting reconsidered in, in a lot of different realms and theaters, but I think in education, certainly, but broadly in our culture. So when Facebook started getting questioned for things like the Cambridge Analytica scandal that happened in 2016, uh, the distrust that started growing of social media, for example, I think is an example of tech correction, but uh, great article. Uh, and, and I'm sorry that I'm, I'm going to butcher this poor woman's name. I think it's Anya, K- uh, Kemenins, uh, was Cam- 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 Cam-
1: Camonets, I think.
0: Uh, thank you. Um, and she is the author of a great book about screen time. But she wrote an article, uh, this was in uh, July, in the New York Times. Uh, it's titled, I was a screen time expert, then the coronavirus happened. And she talks a little bit about... Um, uh, uh, kind of reconsidering her view on this. And and I love that book. I, I I bought that book. I actually integrated some of those ideas in trainings that I've been giving. I too am a um, uh, not anti-screen time. I just think that we have to be more thoughtful about the way we apply technology, extremely powerful technology in our world. But she talks about how being at home with her kids as part of a pandemic has caused her to reconsider some of her views on screen time. It's not that she doesn't question screen time, but she's put in a new variable into this that we've actually talked about. in fact, it feels kind of like she stole this directly from Dr. Fryer. The notion that there is high quality screen time and there is low quality screen time and that the quality of the screen time and what you're doing with the screen time matters just as much as the actual number of minutes you you spend on this. And this has always been uh, my argument too, that it's never as easy as yes or no. It's always a much more nuanced answer than that. But this article talks about this, uh, and, you know, and, and quite frankly, um, I think that one of the conversations we're going to have post pandemic is how technology saved us in a lot of different ways. It was a distraction. It allowed us to stay connected to folks. I've mentioned in past weeks that, I mean, I I have some real problems with Facebook as a concept, but I got to tell you, Facebook has really been my connection with, you know, literally hundreds of people that I wasn't seeing in person otherwise, but I feel a real human connection to. I'd be awfully lonely right now if it was just me. Um. Uh, uh. Uh. Alone, and I'm sure my wife, who is actually off of Facebook now, she is logged off of Facebook and only gets on once a month. But she also much more actively texts friends than I do. So you know, there's a way that the technologies provide a connection to us. So Wes, uh, again, I I kind of consider you to be uh, uh amongst the earlier voices that talked about the quality of screen time. But do you have any thoughts about maybe looking at screen time differently in light of COVID?
1: Oh, I certainly think that one of, you know, we need to, we need to think about the the upside, the, the bright side in terms of, of all the things we're having to do and the changes. <clears throat> the utilization of different technologies by, by teachers who might not have, have been encouraged, pushed, cajoled, you know, to be able to, to be using them. Um, there's a lot of positives in that. I, I, you know, we talk about how things aren't going to be the same. They're not the same, uh, you know, right now and, and following this pandemic um i think that you know the ability for us to get better windows into learning and for us to to be able to make connections i you know people will, will lament i don't know what the different words are but just so much so much time on zoom so much time on the screen i mean these are all healthy things that we've been talking about in the in the arena of wellness and self-care and digital citizenship. Uh, you know, it's just more mainstream now than than ever. And so Moose has has brought his moose to the show. So hello there, buddy. Um. So anyway, I, her book, by the way, is called The Art of Screen Time, How Your Family Can Balance Digital Media in Real Life. It's one of the, the best books that I have seen. And she's one of the, the uh, foremost authors, I think, and 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 uh, outspoken media voices who is advocating balance and not just saying, you know, throw it all away. And it's, it's all terrible. It really is a mix uh, because these are powerful tools, right? Incredibly powerful tools. I mean, how crazy is it that Jason and I get to basically just, you know, sit down a few minutes before the top of the hour each Wednesday night, uh, you know, it, it, nine o'clock my time, eight o'clock his time and, you know, have this conversation. And, and my parents yeah. are in their house in Kansas watching us live and some other folks are too. And by the way, say hi in the chat. If, if you're out there to let us know, I mean, it's phenomenal, right? These are also incredibly humanizing. They can be incredibly humanizing technologies. And so, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great article. And I think we need to continue to have these conversations, not only with other teachers and colleagues, but also with parents, because, you know, the, these were, re- it's really not a changed message from what a lot of us have been saying for a long time. And that is, let's be intentional with our use of these screens. Let's look at how these are impacting our relationships and our lives. Let's not just, you know, turn our kids loose with whatever device it is and never you know, ask them about it, pay attention to what they're doing. I mean, we need to be in dialogue and conversation because um, these are issues that affect us all. It is not simply, right. you know, those kids today that are just so terrible. I mean, it affects everybody. Um, you know, I admit I was actually putting some articles tonight for our for our show on at dinner, and my wife's like, "Why do you have your computer out?" No, like, oh, you're right. You know, um, yeah, we all we need to we all need to be, uh, right. you know, talking about these things, and hopefully, um, you know, we're going to to be able to really. Uh, Extend the positive that that is going to come from from this, Um, as we've talked about, you know, quite a bit on the show. Don't necessarily have articles tonight. Digital divide, gaps in in educational, uh, or sorry, in, in home internet access, all of those things. Definitely play into this, so hey, Eric Langhorst is checking in from his basement in Liberty, Missouri, building his virtual learning environment. that's right because Eric's school district asked teachers to apply to uh, teach on their virtual team and be all online, and he He applied and was accepted, so that is pretty cool, but that I would say that is something yeah, a larger district is is going to be able to do. We are not having that luxury in our smaller school. And, uh, of course it'll be interesting to see, you know, if there, if, if at some point we are forced all to, to go home and exactly how that plays out. So Dr. Neifer, what would your number one home office virtual learning tip for Eric Langhorst and others like him be? Because I know you have really transformed your space and are you close to Nirvana, unicorns (laughs) and rainbows all over? you know, the knifer workspace right now.
0: Well, speaking just from the standpoint of uh, my personal workspace at home, I am getting pretty close. And I think I mentioned in the past that when this whole thing started going down in March and April and it became increasingly clear that I would not be able to leave my house for a long time. um, uh, My wife said, you know, we're not traveling anymore. Uh, you you know, our travel budget is not going to get touched for a while. Get the office of your dreams. I'm not there yet. I'm close. I, I, one of the things I am missing is things hanging up on the wall. Like I have a variety of great things that I hope to put up in, in the coming weeks. But, um, I would say, um, at least from the, from purely the standpoint of working at home, um, don't forget about ergonomics. Um, and, uh, it's absolutely, uh, critical that, you know, you in look up good ergonomic practice, but have a good chair. It's worth the investment. Make sure the chair. And in fact, I'm going to sit up a little bit here because I have worked on ergonomics at home um, that you have the ability to, to, to look at a, a, a monitor closely. Um, uh, I have a webcam that's right above me here, but I have two monitors, one here and one here, but uh, it's set above. It's about 66% above two thirds above. It's where my eye line is. So that I don't have to spend a lot of time kind of cr- uh, 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 cringing is a word I made up my neck. Um, but I'm trying to, you know, I, I, I'm i very careful about that. But if you're going to spend a lot of time at home, absolutely 100 percent, you know, you need to make sure that, you know, uh that's um, uh, you're taking care of yourself in that way. And then one other side note um if you're going from an active teaching position, in other words, Eric, what you were doing in a face-to-face classroom last year, I have no doubt that you spent a lot of time walking around your classroom, uh, you know, uh, going from desk to desk, group to group. Um, uh, I, I have no doubt you are an extremely active teacher. My guess is you got a serious number of steps every day. When you start at a desk job, which teaching online largely is, your activity will go down dramatically. If you don't already have some kind, and I have a Fitbit, uh, which is what noted this to me 10 years ago, keep track of your steps. And if you're not getting enough exercise, get up out of your seat multiple times a day. Take 100 or 200 steps, even if it's just a swing around the room, because uh, you know the, the death doom is real.
1: Absolutely. You want to pick up any more tech correction articles?
0: Um, um, um. Yeah, just one other I would point out that it's kind of related to this. This is from The Verge on July 28th. What happens when you reach your limit online? And um, it, it is full of strategies about what happens when you're maybe engaging in tech in a negative way. And it introduces a term that I know has been around for a couple months now, doom scrolling, which is actually a term that appeared in the New York Times for the first time a couple weeks ago. Doom scrolling is the notion that you have opened up the news and it's... it's... It's bad news, Um, and there tends to be a lot of bad news in the news uh, uh, lately, and you can't stop, and even though you know what the headlines look like, you keep looking at it, and because you have uh, access to literally tens of thousands of news sources, you could steep yourself in really bad news forever and ever and ever. Um, and it goes through some strategies, one of which is limit yourself in in news scrolling every day. Even if you're a news junkie, they suggest setting a 10 minute timer as a strategy here. But in under the same notion of, of being a nuanced user, right? A smart implicator, uh, 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 implicator, introducer, intro something, a smart user of tech that you give yourself the opportunity to not get deep into some kind of internet hole even when you're just checking the news so i thought it was a pretty solid article and the verge gives good strategies including that 10 minute timer for news so that you don't get stuck on your phone in the bad news
1: that's uh, that's excellent uh so eric had said he's uh got the new chair from ikea ordered and he has also set up the the second screen um with an old monitor. And I would say, absolutely. I was able to participate in three virtual conference events this summer. And in the third one, uh, which was using zoom uh, lots, I I actually used my iPad inside what's called sidecar mode. And you have to have newer hardware to do this. Wow. Was that ever great to be able to have content on one and then, you know, chat and video on the other Um, Costco and this, I don't know if the price is still there, but, it had a 27 inch HDMI monitor, you know, for like 120 bucks. Um, and that was a few, you know, a few weeks ago, but that is uh, definitely an investment that's worth, worth making. Um, I would also give a shout out to what you're saying, Jason, to a, a workshop that I shared a few uh, months back. This was in April, 2019. I called it filtering the Exoflood," but yes, the skills of filtering information and trying to be very, uh, judicious and intentional about sources and who we're following and, you know, not just sort of opening ourselves up to this fire hydrant and torrent of, um, of, a, of a, frankly, a lot of pollution. I like that metaphor, a lot of a polluted landscape. So those are important skills. And those are also things for us to, you know, be, be sharing resources with each other, sharing them with uh, family members, with colleagues, because these are, Media and digital literacy skills that we all we all need. So well, let's uh, let's do an information warfare article. So I actually, I we could sometimes we'll call some of these. Uh, well, I don't know. We're, I I worked on the project conspiracies and culture wars quite a bit this summer, and I need to do a little bit more with that. Uh, but we got to get some Spanish lessons written. So maybe maybe not for a, a few weeks. Uh, but this is an article from Vice. That was titled Belarus is trying to block parts of the Internet amid historic protests. This was from August 10th. Um, Twitter, local journalists and Internet freedom organizations report there are widespread Internet blocks in Belarus. So the longtime president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, Lukashenko. yes, there you go. One with 80 percent of the vote. Uh, But the government responded by arresting protesters, uh, you know, blocking Twitter. Um, On this past Monday, Twitter was announcing it was seeing blocking and throttling of Twitter in Belarus in response to protests contesting the election result. So, yes, this is an example of the information war, which um, several authors have termed the like war. And that's an excellent book I'm not finished with yet. And, um, you know, that's that that is how some folks are are responding. So. Uh, Jason, do you have any political prognostications that you would like to offer at this point as as you have, you know, an amazing crystal ball there in Montana, I think, that can <laughs> forecast uh, with great accuracy, not only local election results, but also national ones?
0: Well, um, I um, I've been to Belarus. And in fact, in 2004, I took a group of debate students from Great Falls, Montana, and we did a debate exchange uh, with GOMEL Belarus. There was a a, a Lyceum or a high school in GOMEL that visited us fall 2003. And then I hopped on an airplane for four weeks in spring 2004 and um, an utterly amazing trip. We'll never forget it. Um, But Belarus was under the leadership of Mr. Lukashenko in 2004. In fact, he's been the, the ruler or self-described dictator. When I use that term, it's a term he would use himself to describe his position. But, um, the reason why this is super interesting to me is because I've kept an eye on Mr. Lukashenko and uh, I have friends that, that live in Belarus, but, um, the internet is, is an interesting thing there. At that time in 2004, it was dial-up internet, which wasn't a real surprise. And I felt uh, there was no, there, there's no real cell phone culture there yet. Um, people had cell phones, but you know we're talking about flip phones during this time, no real data. And I did have the opportunity to email my wife. There was a cyber cafe down the street, and then there was dial-up available uh, that I could uh, uh, utilize. But um, the reason why it's been so interesting to me is because... because... Because I do think the Internet can be a very democratizing force because people connecting together can be extremely powerful. And I have been very carefully watching uh, that situation. And the candidate who has uh, literally fled the country, I believe that she is in uh, Lithuania now. And by all international accounts, in fact, NPR just went ahead and said last week when reporting on the pre-election information, they said, well, even though the uh, 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 the candidate, and I'm sorry that I did not know her name off the top, I was like Lukaskaya I think was her last name, Svetlana Lukaskaya um, she uh, uh, it was sparking some interest in the country of Belarus but uh, NPR just straight up said, but the election won't be fair, so there's, there's no chance that she would win, and the fact that she received 20% of the vote uh, itself, I think, is, is a pretty extraordinary situation, but when we were there we actually had to have a State Department briefing before we went to Belarus, and we were very strictly warned that we are not to get involved in political protests. We're not to engage in, uh, uh, political speech while we are there. Um, and in fact, uh, the school I talked to, the one of the history teachers, uh, that, that I, I spent a lot of time speaking to, they had an underground newspaper that they actually sent outside the country to get printed. It was a school, underground school newspaper, uh, but it was sent outside and it was kind of an interesting, view on a country that, you know, clearly had, an extreme limit, um, on, on civil rights. Um, two other quick stories from that. Uh, uh, by the way, we, we had a phone number to call if, uh, things were rough while we were there. Um, and that I think the state department would have sent in people to come get us. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know if, you know, black helicopters show up from Munich or something, but, uh, you know, certainly there was a, uh, you know, a notion that we should let, let them know if things were, were, were going awry. Um, and then secondarily, uh, one of my debaters that was with me, uh, <laughs> we took a train to Minsk to go to the national debate tournament, national high school debate tournament, uh, that was, uh, uh happening during that time. And, uh, she was, uh, uh, aggressively, uh, uh, questioned by a guard in the train station that had a semi-automatic weapon uh, because she had fell asleep in a chair and sleeping strictly prohibited in the train station. And it was a, an interesting introduction to, to my students then about living under a you know, slightly different uh, world view. So very interesting. Um, I do have internet connections with friends. I have not been able to reach them as of late. Um, I'm sure they're okay, but I've been watching it with with great, with great interest.
1: Absolutely. So, a couple additions to that. Um, here's a link from a website called NetBlocks, and this is from August ninth, entitled "Internet disruption hits Belarus on election day." And so, this NetBlocks maps net freedom, and so disruptions on election day in Burundi, in Guinea, in Venezuela. Uh, these, you know, they, this is a this is amazing, and this would be actually a great. Website um, in terms of, of contemporary events and studying geopolitics and the ways in which you know, digital technologies and internet access are playing into all of this. This article from NetBlocks on August 9th has been updated. Um, they have a tweet from August 9th that said Belarus is in the midst of nation scale internet disruption affecting fixed line and cellular operators. The chart shows progressive disconnection of various online platforms, public DNS services, first to go from midnight, then social media. And then uh, it has an update from today at 7.19 a.m. I'm thinking that's converting to my local time here in Central. Update, internet has returned to most of Belarus as of Wednesday morning, election blackout day four, with cellular and fixed line now operational, although monitoring continues Incident duration, 61 hours. So this makes me think of Ukraine and, and other places. Uh, just, I don't, I mean, this is one of these like, hello, yes, you're very sweet. Uh, this is one of the, my dog. For those of you who are listening to this, you will not be able to see that my dog has just decided to give me a kiss. Sorry for that disruption. Um, speaking of disruptions, um, <laughs> I don't I don't think most people recognize how hostile the 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 networked environment has become the ways in which I mean we're we're, we're becoming more aware of aware of, aware of it politically the tech correction as Jason mentioned is is a part of it but you know, it is, we, we take things for granted in terms of, uh, freedom and access that we have. And so this is a playbook for authoritarian leaders that want to maintain control. You know, uh, Arab Spring, which I think happened maybe in 2011, maybe, uh, something like that, 2010. I mean, that really frightened all kinds of authoritarian leaders around the world. And, and since then, that's been about 10 years. You know, we've seen a lot of, I think, very repressive uses of technology. And as we think about geopolitics and we think about, you know, just this connected planet, the way, I mean, let's, I'm not, we won't. We always say we're not a political show and we're not going to be, but I will say this, we need to be stewards of our planet, right? You can have all kinds of, diff- of different bases for this, but we need to leave this place better than we found it. And we need to find ways that we're going to, to to be able to promote, you know, values like human rights and self-determination. And so those values, particularly those of self-determination, open and free elections are being subverted with the weaponization of social media and what we've just seen in Belarus appears to be a textbook study of how groups that are going to protest and advocate for fair elections are, are going to that, – that, that forces, in, in, in this case in government, are going to try to silence them and, and stop them from using social media and, and even using the Internet. And so it is a pretty frightening thing, and it's probably an example, too, of a headline that maybe we didn't notice in the United States because there's all kinds of other hoopla which is justified around coronavirus and election. But there are more things going on in the world that are important besides, you know, elections in the United States and the coronavirus. And I would I would say this kind of of a political situation in Belarus and elsewhere, you know, deserves a lot of attention. So will you be returning to Belarus promptly uh, when the coronavirus uh, travel restrictions are lower, Jason? <laughs>
0: Um, I will not, although Alexander Lukashenko did say that all you need to do is take a strong shot of vodka every day and that will battle any coronavirus. Um, I haven't gotten coronavirus yet, so uh, I won't say whether or not I've taken that advice. Um, but, you know, it works for me.
1: Very good. All right. Well, we've got a few more minutes uh, before maybe we have to geek of the weekend. What else would you like to cover news wise this week?
0: Um, Sure. A couple quick Apple articles uh, that I think were interesting. First and foremost, there's been a new iMac release. We talked about this in, in, in a past episode. It's the 2020 iMac, and it contains 10th generation Intel chips, a lot of interesting media that if you are up for a Mac, don't wait around for the Apple Silicon Macs, you can buy this iMac and it's a great purchase. But as always, if you've had any experience buying Apple products, you know, one of the things that you almost always get a ridiculous upcharge on is when you buy extra Ram in your Mac. And it's been harder as of late. If you're purchasing a MacBook pro, for example, and certainly a MacBook air. Oftentimes the Ram is soldered into the motherboard. So you can't upgrade it. But as it turns out, there's an easy upgrade path. Uh, you just have to, uh, uh, open a panel, and you can update your own RAM. And uh, there's a great article from Nine to Five Mac that walks you through the process. That if you're buying one of the high-end iMacs, um, instead of buying, um, uh, you know, the, the uh, or instead of buying the RAM from Apple, uh, you can get up to uh, well 128 gigs of RAM, which it just blows my mind that that's even available. But if you buy it from a third party as opposed to buying it from Apple, you'll pay six hundred dollars as opposed to twenty six hundred dollars. And when you talk about the iMac being a two thousand twenty five hundred dollar product. Uh, suddenly it's not actually that ridiculous to think about spending $600 on 128 gigabyte RAM upgrade. But as an example of this, if you want 32 gigs of RAM, it's just $130 to buy that uh, from uh, third-party dealers. And they talk about Otherworld Computing, which is a, 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 a somewhat longstanding uh, Apple upgrade product. But if you are in the iMac market, do not buy Apple's uh, uh, RAM upgrades. Instead, go aftermarket hardware and you'll save a bundle.
1: Sounds good. Peggy George has joined us. Hello, Peggy. Uh, and she was in a fantastic webinar um, shared by a lawyer tonight called The Protesting Primer, Your Free Speech and Arrest Rights in Time of in a Time of Civil Unrest. And I will say, I've noticed this, you know, all of our show notes and, and the links that are shared by our live viewers, those are not only on YouTube in the replay of the video uh, for the show, but they're also on Facebook. So that is fantastic. Peggy has shared the slides and um, anyway, that's just that's something else cool. And there's there's the recording, so it looks like it was on Facebook Live. Let's see. I'll pick up one more article here. Um, let's uh, let's talk about broadband. This is an Ars Technica article from uh, yesterday, August 11th. Charter tries to convince FCC that broadband customers want data caps. And the reason why I am mentioning this is because we have faced our first data cap. Charge uh, here in the Fryer Home in Oklahoma City. Um, the article explains how the uh, federal, you know, Federal uh, Communications Commission um, allows for different filings, and um, they, uh, they they basically want their spectrum internet service providers to to be able to have data caps. It's Super interesting because here in the United States, and this is a different norm in other countries, which Jason's probably pretty familiar with having traveled to these different places. uh, We've had data caps on cellular connections, but not historically on home broadband connections. So this last month, um, our local provider, which is Cox Communications, increased our cap from a terabyte, which is a heck of a lot of data, to a terabyte and a quarter uh, but if we, if we blew through that, the charge was $10 per 50 gigs, I think. And so anyway, that could get kind of steep. So we went ahead, I went ahead and threw down another 30 bucks a month for another 500 gigs. And we, uh, you know, are, are within our, our, our cap now. Um, that was summer son is here working remotely. If we don't go back to remote learning, you know, we very well could, except for maybe holiday time in December or whatever, you know, survive fine within those, those data caps. But are you subject to data caps and are you with charter on this, Jason, do consumers in the Montana, they, do you want data caps as soon as possible? Um, uh,
0: so I think charter and spectrum are the same company, right? Yeah. So I am a charter customer and um, I will tell you right now, I do not want a data camp. Uh, and I feel like I have strong opinions about technology in the world. And yet, um, I can tell you with absolute certainty that I do not want a data cap. And I was just going to look uh, via my Google uh, Wi-Fi router because I can tell you how much I've used in the last 30 days. Uh, we're in a bit of a different situation because it's just uh, uh, it's just me and my wife. And we are both working at home. And we spend an awful lot of time on Zoom calls. But I was going to check to see... What that looked like for us, but it 's funny because if you read that article, it, it gets into the details about a lot of the the counter arguments against a data cap will be things like that there is no competition for charter in many of the places where they 're located, and that would be the case in Missoula. Uh, we have DSL, although DSL is much slower than cable internet access. But we don't have any fiber providers here. We don't have any, um, uh, uh, kind of broadband wireless providers other than major cell phone companies, which would be kind of a different gig. And, um, I cannot say that, that myself, that I have desired that. But, you know, I, I think if you're using a, a terabyte, especially if it's, if it's a couple, and I'm terrified that that's going to be what's going to tell me is you used a terabyte this month. Um, but, uh, I, I, yeah, I just, I, I I can't imagine a consumer that's, that's, that's asking for that and, or even knows to ask for that. Right. And so I think they're, they're, they're making that up just a bit, but um, in the last 30 days, I have used yikes. I have used 858
1: gigs. Approaching the terabyte.
0: Yep. So yeah. So we would be, I think, uh, 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 a suspect of that. I will tell you though, as an example of using up a lot of data uh, every time I reset my phone, which I do every two to three months, um, I have a program that downloads. I store a bunch of movies and music and television shows on my phone for when I travel. That's obviously not going to be needed in in the near future. But, um, you know, I oftentimes will download 40 or 50 gigs of of stuff from one of my cloud accounts to my phone to travel with. And, like, so I guess under that notion, I would just have to not download that, or I'd have to do it on a public, or I'd have to go do it at work, or, yeah, it just it's it's I think it's a strange argument.
1: And if you've got a console, uh, and we're we do have an, we do have one, but we're not avid gamers, um, you know, new games can be incredible. Uh, my friend yeah. James Deaton, who uh, now works with an Internet Two consortium, uh, shared a little bit about the impact that that can have when one of these new games pardon me, when one of these new games hits and, you know, people have to download, you know, multiple gigabytes and it's like, you know, pulled down to everybody's house. Well, I don't know how it happened, Jason, but I think we might've crossed the top of the hour. It's, uh, it's shocking.
0: Okay. Well, let me do my geek of the week. and I can toss it back to you. Um, I, as I've talked about in the past, uh, and I've talked about earlier in this episode, uh, Cloud Ready from Neverware is a, a Chromebook-like experience. It uses Chromium, the open source. And I found a, a tutorial uh, a couple weeks ago that allowed me to to basically refurbish my very beloved 2013. Chrome Pixelbook. I bought this a few years after it was released for Dirt Cheap on eBay. This was the first uh, released uh, uh, premium Chromebook from Google. It stopped receiving updates in 2018 and had been sitting at the bottom of a drawer at work. And I ran into an article a few weeks ago about how you can replace the firmware. So the software that interfaces with the hardware and then wipe it and put cloud ready to here, and sure enough, my beloved uh, Chromebook, which you can I guess see us in reflection, is probably not going to turn on now. But yeah, there it is. Uh, this is this is cloud ready, and so it's receiving new updates again. Um, I, you know, I can't say I'm totally in love with. Uh, it's only got four gigs of RAM. It's it's a, a seven year old chip. It's only got 32 gigs of storage. But the first generation Chromebook Pixel has the best keyboard I have ever used on any device. And oh, wow. so I've been totally in love again and all I had to do was pop the back off uh, and and pull a jumper and then run a couple of, of commands on the command line and it was super simple. So I put the directions if you happen to be like a district that has uh, some of these bad boys sitting around or if you are a developer uh, you, you're probably not watching our show, but if you're a developer um, then uh, you might have received the, one of these in the 2013 Google I/O, you can actually start start getting updates on this again with Cloud Ready.
1: That is awesome. I will quickly overshare as I am prone to do now with Geek of the Week. First, Peggy George, thank you uh, sharing that. Long Beach Public Media had shared that webinar. You can visit them on Facebook.com/slash. Uh, LB Public Media, and last week they had a show from the News Literacy Project, which is absolutely fantastic. If you don't follow News Literacy Project on Twitter and the um, newsletters that they send out, um, their session last week was called "What It Means to Be News Literate," which is fantastic. Uh, first geek of the week for me is a new screencasting tool, Loom. I had heard a bit about Loom uh, at the at the Mountain Moot. I actually tried it this uh, today to do my first screencast. Very awesome. Uh, got a free pro account as a teacher, which also is awesome. I do love Screencastify, but, you know, it limits free accounts to five minutes. I'd pay 25 bucks for that upgrade, but really like Loom and uh, would recommend that. Um, second one, this is uh, hilarious. Well, no, this one isn't hilarious. This is just great. This is uh, Professor F- Fleming, who is at Stony Brook University, and she created a wonderful iMovie trailer for her course, uh, qualitative interviewing research methods for the digital age. So if if you've seen, you know, iMovie trailers, I've seen a lot of kids have created and things like that. It's kind of cool to see one for a college, you know, uh, research course that, um, yeah, shows, shows how, you know, all kinds of different ways to engage. Uh, been doing a lot of workshops and training this week, getting back to school. Um, one of the great resources that everybody should certainly know about is uh, Shake Up Learning, and this is a Google – cheat sheet, which is just fantastic. You know, uh, even if you know a lot about Google, there's always more to learn. And so, um, Casey Bell has the Shake Up learning, uh, website and Twitter handle. And so that is just one of many awesome cheat sheets that she has for Google tools. And finally, my last thing, this one is the funny one, Harris County libraries, which I think, uh, it's gotta be, it's gotta be in Texas for this. Um, this came with the, A Twitter share, this is a triumph. If you've ever seen and who hasn't a used car salesman who is so excited to tell you about the latest deals, this is all about the library and all the wonderful resources that you can find in the library. And a very creative and humorous and I would say effective public service announcement uh, by someone who very well could be a used car salesman, but I think he just happens to be a librarian. So, that is it for me. I am W. Fryer on Twitter. I'll just anticipate this last question. Chairing at speedofcreativity.org every once in a while and updating my not only media and digital literacy curriculum, but also my Spanish curriculum, uh, which will be starting that on Friday at mdtech.cassidy.org. Where are you out in the URL world, Dr. Neifer?
0: I am at Teach on Twitter. I also blog for the Northwest Council for Computer Education, blog.ncc.org. And I am the Assistant Director of the Montana Digital Academy, montanadigitalacademy.org. But this here is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a -a once-a-week podcast that broadcasts on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central Time, sometime in the middle of the night if you happen to be in Western Europe. But, hey, you should probably catch us on our podcast feed. You can go to any pod podcast app and look for edtech situation room you can go to our website edtechsr.com you can look for us on youtube where you can find a uh, past episodes or the most recent episode for your listening and viewing pleasure we hope you tune in next time live as we do uh, each and every week you can get links for that on facebook or at our twitter handle edtechsr.com and we hope to see you next time on the edtech situation room good night have a great week everybody